0: This is Glenn Kaiser and welcome to another in our series of Dolby Institute and Soundworks Collection podcasts, Conversations with Sound Artists. This is our second season and I'm really, really excited today to be joined by Nevin Steinberg. Nevin is a theatrical sound designer, having most recently worked on Hamilton, which is a show that I'm sure that you know, you've all heard about. So I'm really excited to have Nevin on the show today. We've, we've talked with a lot of film and television and video game sound designers, but I don't think a lot of people really think that much or pay attention to theatrical sound design. And so I'm, I'm really thrilled to have Nevin on the show today to talk to us about what he does and the differences between you know doing sound design for musicals versus I guess legit plays is is, uh, the nomenclature still but Nevin has uh, been doing amazing work for a long time I I looked you up on Broadway internet database and it looks like you started with the full Monty which was an amazing show yeah if you were on Gypsy and Avenue Q Spamalot I want to talk with you about that because Mike Nichols is one of my all-time great heroes and I I would love to hear what it was like to work with him yeah were on the Bible of Chorus Line. You worked closely with our good friends Larry O'Keefe and Nell Benjamin on Legally Blonde in the Heights. Title of show, I'm just, I'm sure I'm just embarrassing you by this point. I have to say, (laughs) I have to say the motherfucker with the hat because I love saying that. Right. Yes. Uh, That's a must. Venus, Venus and Fur, which I saw on Broadway and just blew me away. And obviously, you know, Hamilton. So the the audience for this podcast has really uh, turned out to be pretty varied, but we have a lot of film students. We've got a lot of people who are interested in sound design. And I, I think it would be really useful just for you to kind of explain a little bit about what sound design for Broadway or, you know, any kind of live theatrical uh, environment means. Yeah, uh, that,
1: that's uh, probably a good place to start. Um, you know, I, I, I try not to be too funny about it, but my, my reductive answer about it is basically I make stuff louder, right? I mean, that's my that's my job. <laughs> is you know, to the layperson, that's how I explain it because it's it's a difficult and complex task. But at its most basic, uh, live sound. Uh, from the reinforcement end is really about making is communicating the event to a large group of people and whether that be a hundred people or a thousand people or 10,000 people that's the job um in in my world the venues uh and and we can get specific about it later but but on on broadway the venues range in size from about 800 seats to about 2000 seats that's really the range mm-hmm. so uh, it's not a wide range and it's not these are not huge venues but you're talking about intimate stories often sometimes with two or three people up to maybe 20 or 30 people being communicated to a, a relatively tidy group of people in and generally in historic architecture so these are the challenges and this is kind of the matrix of problems that you come up with uh so from a there there there's the primary job of a sound designer on broadway which is which is basic reinforcement how to communicate um uh, the spoken word and music to a large group of people in a in a pleasing and somewhat homogenous manner to the entire mm-hmm. to the entire venue um, that gets uh, you know leveled up when you start talking about conceptual ideas about how how that style of reinforcement matches the material. Um, There's of course monitoring issues that have to be dealt with which are complicated both for the cast and for the musicians. There are synchronization issues that come with lighting, uh, automation, and projections which also fall into my department. There are communication and video issues which fall under my department. And then um, there's also a, a wide range of atmospheres, playback, ambiences, or sweetening, as you might call it in the film world, um, post-production work that would you know would normally fall in post-production for um, for the film and, and television world, but but falls into into my world as part of the live event as well. So it's right. a it's a it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty wide range, and that and you know that can as I say can go from anything from something like what you saw in Venus and Fur, which is a two-character play in a confined single set. Um, to something like Hamilton, which is, you know, twenty-two people on stage and a you know an
0: epic two-hour and forty-five-minute story told entirely through song. And um, so, I'm I'm curious about the process. So, you've got, I mean, uh, you know, obviously, if you're talking about a big show like Hamilton, you've got the you've got the songs, you've got multiple things going on, you've got a you know, obviously, you've got a house with a there's uh, the Richard Rogers has one balcony. Is that is that right? Yeah, one large balcony. Yeah. So, and you're trying to optimize the performance for everybody because I can, I've, I've looked online. I know how much those people are paying for those seats. <laughs> so you're trying to make sure that everybody has a good experience. But you're you're also dealing with you know you're monitoring for the cast so they can hear their performance. There's also a certain amount of of um, I think what we would more traditionally call in the film business sound design, but you're but you're calling atmospheres and sweetening you know sound effects basically. Yeah, absolutely. So this is just. It's a huge mountain of material, and obviously, with something like Hamilton, the most one of the most important. Aspects of your job is to make sure that it's articulate and that people can understand what people are saying and singing. So, how do you even start? Like, where do you? What's your entry point? Where? How do you start that process? Well, most one of the things that many of your listeners may not realize is
1: the is the timeline for something like Hamilton or any big musical is is rather long. And mm-hmm. the, the the object of the game, from my point of view, is to get involved as early as possible because the more I know kind of the more grinding I can do on these kinds of things and really think about how we're going to do it. Now, of course, the venue, you know, doesn't get decided until later. And often you're talking about multiple venues. Hamilton, for example, played uh, the Public Theater, which is a 280-seat theater uh, downtown in the East Village, and then moved to Broadway, which is 1,300 seats on Broadway. So, you know, the venue will change. And that, of course, has a tremendous effect on on my approach. But from the other side about how to approach the the kind of elements of the sound design, either playback elements or synchronization elements, or the kind of sound you want to hear and what you're how you're going to uh, affect the voices, how you're going to, to deliver the score you know those kinds of decisions those get developed over a long period of time. I get I get to experience a lot of these shows in their early development process which in, uh, is often what we call a stand-in saying. it's a reading. you know the actors will rehearse for 20 hours in one week and at the end of the time they'll literally stand at music stands, no amplification often uh, with just a piano or in this case something like Hamilton will be a piano and maybe some beats, some loops uh, that are played on Ableton. Um, and we will be in the room while this happens, either for the entire rehearsal process or at least some of it, and certainly for these last couple of days where they're presenting, and just start to hear the score and just start to hear the words and try and get a sense of, what, of what's happening with the piece. And that will then, uh, you know, the next step in that process might be a workshop or a lab, which we call them, which is, these are um, actually actors' equity uh, uh, categories that are about, this is
0: about labor this is about unions I, I'm, but I'm sure these are all very carefully defined <laughs> they are you know are. things with, with boundaries and all yeah. that sort of stuff yeah but yeah. for our purposes they're basically steps in a developmental
1: chain right they're, they're, they're way the way this is the way a show gets developed and, and evolves and gets an opportunity to be heard and worked on in a controlled environment and when we do a workshop we'll often add amplification we'll add microphones we'll add maybe a small band and again I participate in these things not just as a problem solver so that when we present them to uh, interested parties Including investors and producers and directors and and other design uh, members, but also for me to start to talk about the the process by which we're going to kind of you know get this thing have it blossom into a bigger event and 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 I think the key thing here and this is also good for people who don't who don't know show business but who understand film and TV is that. I, I believe that the the dialogue that the, that surrounds these events is actually the most important part of the job talking to the director mm-hmm. talking to the choreographer talking to the music department talking to the composer and really having conversations about what their goals are because ultimately my job is to is to try and determine what what the what what we're all trying to achieve as a story making team as a storytelling team and then figure out my part of that how to mm-hmm. how to take responsibility for my part of that um, and often that that involves uh, you know very close collaboration with obviously a lot, of, a lot of other individuals including lighting designers set designers costume designers projection designers um but but mostly it's those conversations that start to motivate me uh and that's how I develop kind of a mental approach. And I, and I guess I would say a mental picture for what this thing is going to start to sound like in my head and what it wants to sound like in their heads. And we sort of marry those things and I try and build on that. And so when I start to approach a solution, both from a technological point of view and from a content point of view, so from a, let's say from a, A response to the geometry of the architecture, and what I mean is like a sound system, just a delivery system, and a routing system, how I approach that, and then how I approach the content, which is the, in this case, the sound design, the sound effects, and the atmospheres, and the ambiences. Those things are informed by those conversations, and I develop those over a very long period of time. And the, yeah. and the mental, the mental uh, picture of what this could and should sound like becomes more and more refined over time. Sure. Um, and with something like Hamilton, I even, even go so far as like sitting down with the musical supervisor and the orchestrator and listening to demo orchestrations very early in his process before he's committed them to paper so that he and I are starting to have conversations about how, how the score is going to interact with the with the vocals, how how what's this? How is this music going to be uh, produced essentially for the stage, and how can I help uh, make sure that we're getting it all and that that it's taking care of the vocal lines and that we're really feeling the energy of it? So,
0: I, I generally like to be as well prepared for these conversations as I possibly can. Um, I have not seen Hamilton, <laughs> okay, <laughs> Just, despite repeated attempts. Um, <laughs> because I, yeah, I just didn't want to pay $3,000 for uh, for a ticket. It's, yeah, uh, it, it, yeah it was, it's, it's, it's uh, and, and I would love to talk with you about this at some point. Like what, what is it like to be involved with something that explodes like that and becomes such a, just such a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think we've ever seen ticket prices like that for, you know, on a, on a Broadway show. The last time I tried again a couple of months ago and I didn't realize it was, I think it was like 2 weeks before Lynn Manuel Miranda was leaving the show. So literally the the che- the cheapest ticket that I could find online was up in the the back right of the balcony uh for uh $2900. Really? Uh, Oh yeah. my goodness. Well, wow. I was just about to say
1: that I know it sounds pretty good up there, but I'm not sure it sounds that good. I mean,
0: that's yeah, crazy. I was just, I, I was just, uh, so there were, there were single seats going in the first five rows of the orchestra for, uh, nine to $10,000. And I just, I mean, it's just a, it's amazing to me that we live in a society where people can and do pay that. Yeah. But, uh. So, but that, so that, that was all my long winded way of saying, we're going to have a conversation about Hamilton and I haven't seen the show. So I'm shooting a little bit in the dark here, but of course I've listened to the cast album and, and read as much as I could. So well, the, pr- uh,
1: I will say, I'm proud to say that one of the things
0: about the cast album, just a little
1: insert here is that, you know, a lot of times I don't listen to cast albums of my shows because I find them to be a little bit demoralizing because I work in sure. what I like to describe as a hostile environment, right? i <laughs> live is very, very hard. And we have, We have constraints that no studio guy has ever encountered. Um, and so, when sometimes when I hear these cast albums, I just feel like, wow, they could just do whatever they wanted. You know, there's like these it's like these, a free pass. These,
0: these pristine yeah. studio recording yeah. cast albums. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, and I think my show sound a lot of them sound pretty good. But like you, you know, you listen to that and you think, oh, that's what it, you know. Really, that's what they're doing. Like you can do that. And so I I usually have a policy of not listening to uh, cast albums until the show closes. I, I try to I try not to put my ears on them because I find that this doesn't help me, frankly, and it doesn't help. You know, it's just not. Informative, but I will say that uh, we did listen to the Hamilton cast album actually as a group. There was a listening party when it just before it dropped on iTunes, which was pretty exciting. And there was a moment where I looked over at my front of house engineer, Justin Rathbone, who's excellent, and um, and kind of gave him a nod because what I was hearing on the cast album was something that actually really closely resembled what we had done live in a way that was very made me very happy. It had a, it had it really felt like it had they had listened to the show and had created something, which is I think a stunning piece of uh, record producing. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful album and and they went farther in certain areas than we could do live. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, to take nothing away from them, but it, but it, I think it does actually bear some resemblance to the, to the live event in a way that makes me very happy as a guy who's responsible for the live event. Right. You know, knowing that sure. you and, and hundreds of thousands of people that their only experience of the show at this point is the album, uh, is not, it, it, it's, it's actually encouraging to me because it it's, feels, it's really- not
0: heartbreaking to you. No, exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. Which is good. And that's a testament to the guys who made it.
0: Yeah. So the specific genre of, this, of the of the singing in the show um, is obviously I think you would you would say not traditionally Broadway, um, but there's a lot of rapid fire uh, vocals going on yeah. and, and stuff moves very fast. There's a lot of overlapping. Um, obviously, that must have presented a challenge for you in terms of, of designing a system that's going to reach and be articulate in every seat. So this I mean, does this get down to like basic math? Like, what are the tools that you use to sort of articulate that and try to figure out so this has got to be a great engineering puzzle for you.
1: It is. Um that and that's job one, you know, that's the basic job one of any musical is really, you know, you, people want to hear the words. They want to particularly in a musical they don't know, you know, a new musical. Um so that to a certain extent that's always the task, right? How do you make sure that people can hear the show? Um with Hamilton, obviously the the stakes were a little higher because as as you described, it, it comes very fast and um and I think not only is it is it fast, but the one of the things that people don't realize about it is that it's sung through, uh, meaning that there are no book scenes in the show. There, there right. I think there's maybe one paragraph of spoken word, non-rhythmic spoken word in the in the piece. The rest of it is sung or rapped. Um, which also makes it hard on the ears of an audience, right? It's it's not a familiar place for us to live. We're we're used to getting a rest and listening to uh, dialogue in a book scene and getting a some of our exposition through something that's a little more familiar before people break out in song, and that doesn't happen in Hamilton. Um, in addition, the music, the musical styles, most of the of the music in the show, I wouldn't say all of it, because that's kind of the genius of it too, is some of it excuse the other way, but most of it is incredibly muscular, um, and, Mm -hmm. and powerful of that muscularity and power as, as much as we could, we'd also be falling short, right? We'd be doing, we'd be doing the show a disservice. So all of these things kind of ratchet up the stakes of what is the normal job, which is how do you just communicate the words and music of a show? Well, Hamilton kind of, uh, kind of made us all buckle down and think about it, uh, much more in, in, intensively, and I think this is where designers do do jobs differently. Um, I, I like to, you know, it is a math problem. It is a lot of geometry. It is a lot of uh, a lot of using the tools that manufacturers make available to you for loudspeaker predictions and things like that. And it is a lot of imagining how you want sound to travel, you know, from the stage through the theater and kind of working backwards from the from the theater seating. Uh, back to the stage, essentially imagining a source on stage and imagining a source in an orchestra pit. And and again, matching the mental picture in your head, uh, what this thing may want to sound like and feel like in a theater for an audience member. And then kind of imposing that uh, kind of reverse, laying it over the architecture and saying, oh, okay, well, this is where I want the sound to come from. This is the this is how I would want the sound to be distributed. This is where I will need help in certain problem areas because architecturally this is a challenge because of an overhang or a shadow from a, a seating box. Um, this is going to be a challenge because of scenery and where loudspeaker positions can be because of scenery and lighting and how those need to be shared. But you sort of start from pie in the sky and work your way back and basically say, you mm-hmm. know, this is this is the kind of gear we need. I mean, really. It, you know the the joke i make often is that it's new york so real estate is everything just like it is <laughs> just like it is for an apartment rental you know these theaters are small and cramped and there's a lot of people trying to fit a lot of technology in them to make these shows happen so um it isn't like a a uh, a rock and roll p a where you can hang you know hundreds of uh, line winery boxes anywhere you want and just cover the whole stadium that way or the whole arena that way this is uh these are are very uh compressed spaces and there are there are very limited areas where you can can put equipment to to do the job you want so it's about refining uh <laughs> uh, refining an idea about a uh, conceptual idea about what something wants to sound like, and then refining, uh, that idea to include tools, appropriate tools to make it happen. And that, you know, that's about familiarity with tons of, kind you know, tons of tools
0: essentially. Yeah. And a lot of these spaces are obviously, you know, they're historical spaces yeah. as well. So yeah. does that, I mean, do this, does that present issues of sort of like, well, I have to you know, this whole thing is, this whole space is made of plaster. So how do I, you know, it's obviously a very live, reverberant material. How do you deal with that sort of thing as you're, as you're designing the show?
1: Yeah, sometimes you do. Uh, sometimes you're able to make uh, some, I mean, the the plaster issue and the structural issues are, are ones that we bump up against all the time. And and we, we, we have to work very closely with the theater owners to make sure we're not destroying their building, basically. Although these buildings are used over and over for this purpose. So it's not uncommon, but these conversations happen... On every production, about I want to put something here, and it's going to go through the ceiling, and we need to make sure there's structure above it because it's just plaster, and it's obviously it can't fall on people's heads. So, a lot of those problems have to get solved uh, along the way. The issue of acoustics is a big one, and you know some of these theaters are acoustically live, and some of them have already been treated in the past and have some acoustic treatment. The Rogers, where where Hamilton is, is is actually pretty live. Um, it's I think it's one of the things that. The creative team who made In the Heights, and, and which I was a part of, and who now made Hamilton actually likes about the space, is that there is no question you're hearing a live event. Um, and mm-hmm. part of that is due to the, the somewhat live acoustic uh, signature of the room. So it you know sometimes it drives me a little crazy but uh, on the other hand the audience is never under the impression that the orchestra isn't live or that the cast isn't doing it live there's a real sense of of a uh, live happening in that room and i and i do think that that uh, a great deal of that is due to the fact that it's reverberant that when we when we do push sound into the space, both just with the spoken, you know, the spoken word, the human voice and the amplification system, that it it rattles around a little bit and makes you realize, it makes you realize work is being done, you know, and, and I
0: think that builds the excitement. So one thing I'm, I'm I'm curious about, so you're describing a process that sounds like it has a lot of R and D attached to it, a lot of experimentation. Um, how much, I mean, I know this just probably varies on, on every show, but how much time do you get in the theater to do all that work without, you know, I I mean, tech week is always just such a, you know, nightmare of all these pieces crashing together, lighting and the costumes for the first time and the, you know, actors in the space. And so do you get, unfettered access to the theater for a while to do your tests and to install your gear and all that stuff before this kind of this circus starts
1: yeah uh yeah most of the time i I, I try and make one or two visits to an empty theater prior to specifying equipment anyway um, and that's a that's a visit to as many of the seating areas as i can get to Um, Just to sit and contemplate, I bring a sketch pad now and just kind of draw things and scribble things and make notes about where are likely places and what kind of equipment I might be looking for. I try not to get too specific about, you know, manufacturers and models at that point, but sort of, um, Mm -hmm. you know... The kind of architectural specifications of what I might be looking for to solve problems in different seating areas. Um, And then I might go back if I have an opportunity and do that again and refine those things. I take a lot of photographs, obviously, and we look at CAD drawings, uh, a lot of computer assisted drawings of the spaces also to do analysis. I'll plug a lot of that into uh, prediction programs from speaker manufacturers. If I start focusing in on how to address certain things and whether some of the gear might be suited for certain jobs uh, on a on a you know on a particular show, and then uh, the install of the sound equipment is concurrent with the install of everything else—the lighting and the set and the projection—and and no projections on Hamilton, but typically there would be projections. Um, so all of that starts to come to the building at the same time. On Broadway, that can last anywhere from two weeks to a month, usually, uh, maybe uh-huh. even a little more. That whole install process. So we're putting all that stuff in with uh, with everyone else. Um, I skipped a step, which is once the equipment is specified and the system design is specified, the the sound system is actually assembled off site at the at the rental shop at the vendor to be uh, labeled, assembled, and tested before it gets installed. So we we have one opportunity right off the bat to make sure the system's performing. In the way it's been it's been designed, that, no, that's in a that's hmm. in a shop, so that's in pieces, you know. Um, sure. But then once it's put into the building, we then will get. Uh, it depends on the show, but on a musical, typically I get eight eight to twelve hours of time in the theater with just the audio crew and uh, to do uh, analysis, uh, verification, and tuning.
0: Um, and what are you what are you using to test the Tesla system at that point? Are you using playback, or do you you have you have some actors who come in and just vocalize for you, or what? How, what's that process? Uh, generally, I use
1: a uh, uh, system verification tools. Either um, in my case, when the budget allows, I'll use uh, Meyer Sound uh, Sim Three, um, which is a, a great system. Uh, verification tool. It it allows multiple channels of microphone inputs throughout the th- uh, throughout the theater, and we send uh, test program, uh, either program or test tones or pink noise into the theater, and we can measure both. The performance of the system. We can verify the system electronically end to end, essentially from the console right. through. But then we can also measure it acoustically at all the listening positions. Depending on how many microphones I can deploy, sometimes I'll, uh, on Hamilton I deployed twenty-four microphones through the theater, and I'm able to essentially look at the the system performance at all of those microphones from and sure. and turn on and off the subsystems and make sure that not only are the loudspeaker systems performing. As advertised and as expected, but then see the interactions and also, um, uh, you know, help uh, as needed uh, tune tune the sound system to the room. If there are uh, things in the room that are either being, uh, you know, that are out of bounds, I can I can try and tame them. Um, so that's a way of doing the initial verification and setup of the sound system. From there, uh, I'll proceed to some playback, some program that I know, and I'll balance the system by ear after that, uh, and then we'll often put a microphone on either one member of the sound crew or an actor or somebody and, mm-hmm. have, and have them talk on the stage and make sure that uh, that things are performing, you know, that we're in a good place to start, which is actually all you can really do. I mean, there's no way to to get this thing all buttoned up by that first day of tech, but, of course. but we can get to a good starting place and feel confident. and. And, you know, and you talk about tech week, which is sometimes tech two weeks. uh, It depends on the show. And, you know, I have a motto with my staff, which is we get to the end of the first day of that craziness, which is adding the cast, adding the costumes, adding the lights, adding the turntable or whatever it is in the scenery. And, you know, if we get to the end of the day and sound comes out and nobody got hurt you know, we're good. We're we're. That's like you know, day one is. That's gotta
0: be. That's gotta be a heartbreaking day. Right? Yeah.
1: No, it's yeah. actually a great day. I mean, I you know, I, I actually I find tech to be very exciting because it's the day. You know, it's where the it's finally where you're where things are. You're you're finally heading in the right direction. You know. Yeah. And you know, and you're gonna, and you know whether you're gonna be okay. You know, it's a long road, and you know you've got a lot to do. You know, there's a lot ahead of you in terms of refining the system and 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 deciding about how to resolve the the delivery issues that you're going to encounter, but boy, you know, it's really, it's fun to finally get down to work. Um, so, um, yeah, that's a great, that's a great day.
0: I'd love for you to talk just a little bit about about um, about mixed delivery and track assignments, and and not to get too off, you know, too too wonky about it. But you know, I think most of my listeners are obviously very familiar with five point one sound systems and seven point one you know channel based sound systems. Yep. And obviously, at Dolby, we've um, we've developed Dolby Atmos, which is a, a an object based system that allows you to target specific speakers in the in the array in the house. But is that a little bit close? sort of what you're doing do you, you have the ability to target any individual speaker in in the space and how do you uh how are you how are you actually accomplishing that
1: well uh yeah we i mean our sound systems i, I know uh, i i did a little study on atmos actually uh a couple of weeks ago because i've been curious about about that innovation in in the cinema world and uh it's fascinating and, and really cool and there are people who are doing uh, starting to do similar things uh, for live as well um we basically mock up uh uh, a surround system, but, but our systems, the, the output count on a, on a theatrical sound system is, is often, you know, uh, I mean, we're in the we're in the tens and dozens of outputs uh, long before Atmos came out. I mean, we've been sure. You know, Hamilton Hamilton has something. I forget how many speak loudspeaker individual loudspeakers Hamilton has, but it's it's I think it's a couple of hundred. It's two two and a quarter or two hundred thirty different loudspeakers on stage, and and
0: you and, can target any one of those specifically.
1: Not exactly. We we saw we sometimes combine them into zones. So uh-huh. uh, particularly things like monitoring, you know, we wouldn't target those individually unless we had specific sound effects we needed. But it, but we could. I mean, that's actually. A system design question. You know, the needs, the the need to target those speakers. We wouldn't do it as a matter of course because it's an expensive and complicated thing
0: to do. Um, mm-hmm. But we
1: can. Because the other, the other yeah. thing that you're trying to
0: do is you're trying to make the show. I mean, to, uh, as much as you can, you're trying to keep it simple to operate. Yes, and, and and simple to perform because you've got to perform the show live eight shows a week. That's right.
1: That's right. right. And one, and it, there is no just kind of pushing the button and making it go again. Um, but from an output point of view, that's really um, that's kind of the fun the fun part of the game. And for the for the for the audience, having a system that has multiple points of resolution where I can I can. Choose paths to the audio system for, for example, uh, and this this is actually probably will answer. I hope we'll answer your question. So, it, for a principal vocalist, for example, in a musical, uh, you know, one of our principal characters who's constantly on stage, we might have a stereo uh, path to the sound system for those principal vocalists, um, and that path will be distributed to the sound system uh, to. 64 or 80 outputs essentially uh, at any point and and each you know and 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 the same with a, a stereo path for the ensemble vocals for the back you know the people on stage who may not have individual lines um there'll be multiple paths multiple stereo paths for the orchestra uh and the same thing and each of those paths can be mixed into each of those output areas into the zones of seating and we're talking about i would say somewhere around two dozen seating areas if you had mm-hmm. to if you had to kind of break it up um uh And those mixes can be adjusted to each of those zones individually. Not, uh-huh. No, not they could be done dynamically. They're generally not. Once we once we kind of dial those in, that delivery path is pretty static as a general rule. And then we get into surrounds, and we do tend on on big musicals. I, t- I tend to hang our surround system, which mocks up basically to a five point one, you know, a five a five channel surround system. Um, uh-huh. Again, in zones uh, where we will gang a few speakers together. We won't necessarily try and address them individually, um, but. You know, again, if if the show has a a tremendous amount of surround content or special effects that need to travel through the theater in a very complex way, we can and have and have done, uh, you know, uh, surround systems where we can address each speaker individually. So, I think, as you say, the idea is to kind of create paths that are that are simplify the delivery system, but still give us lots of resolution on the output side to make sure that we can really refine. So, for example, somebody on the main floor might be hearing one mix from, you know, at where they're sitting, they might be hearing four or five or six different loudspeaker systems combining to address that seating area where somebody in the back sure. of the balcony where you tried to buy a ticket in the <laughs> in the rear right hand, you know, they might be hearing only two systems really, right? They might be hearing a main array and a delay system that's associated with it. Um, and then of course you add subwoofers to that and surround and things get pretty complicated pretty fast. So my my goal as a designer and as somebody responsible for delivering the the material to to the audience is to is to try and give them a very high quality experience and have the tools to do it, right? Have points of resolution, have points to address each of those seating areas where I feel confident that if there are issues in the mix or if there are issues in just SPL and delivering, you know, the the volume of the show, I can do that and have, have many places to go and turn a knob electronically, essentially, to get them what they need. Mm.
0: Talk to me a little bit about. Um, I'm just curious about the role of, of sound effects uh, in, in a show like Hamilton and, and in Broadway shows in general. I think, you know, we wouldn't normally associate um, live theatrical shows as heavy kind of tour de force sound effects uh, pieces. But I think that there's a, that it seems like uh, there were quite a few opportunities for that in, in Hamilton, especially um, in the use of time transitions.
1: Uh, yeah 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 there's there's two big there's two big uh moments of uh, sound effects uh I guess virtuosity in in Hamilton one I think is the story of the gunshots the story of cannon fire and gunshots you know because mm-hmm. the duel is obviously a central plot point um, and duels play a role throughout the show we actually have three duels in the show and and um, uh, you know, two and then the one, the final duel that that everybody knows about. And, uh, you know, the idea of how to establish gunfire in the show and make it meaningful and have it tell a story as an arc throughout the show was very interesting. And this was great discussions with uh, Tommy Kale, the director, about what those gunshots want to feel like and, and mm-hmm. how we, how to tell that story and how we start with basically a vanilla gunshot, kind of a very simple gunshot, I like to call it, that, you know, and period, these are period period gun gunfire from, from library, excellent libraries, actually in this case, um, that, that have been modified for our show. And uh-huh. then, and then we, we, we exaggerate the gunfire as the show goes on. And then when, um, uh, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, I guess, but when Hamilton's son dies, he's, he's killed in a duel. and And that gunshot is actually given sort of a hip hop treatment. It's chopped and screwed a little bit to give you a little bit of a stutter, which actually mm-hmm. you can hear the audience gasp when we made that change off Broadway. That was originally just another gunshot. And when we gave it its kind of special treatment and and gave it a little bit of a point of view, I like to think, um, mm-hmm. you know, the audience response was, was palpable. It was something you could actually hear every night and you know, it was a, a great success. And it's a lot of, mm-hmm. I mean, fun is the wrong word because it, it's a tragic moment, but it is a great It's a great moment of uh, pride for me in storytelling uh, to enhance the storytelling. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then the final gunshot. The, there's actually two of them because we stop one in time, and this goes back to what you were saying: is how you can stop time with sound. That the 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 ultimate gunshot in the duel is actually we we stop it, we 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 uh, arrest it and reverse it, and that's what triggers uh, the turntable move and Hamilton's final soliloquy. Uh, before we actually return to le- to you know real time and a gu- and a final stirring gunshot which kills is ultimately kills Hamilton and, and ends our story. So there's a great opportunity there for sound to help us understand that we're we're pushing pause in this story, right? And, the, and that we're going to an internal place. Um, uh, the gunshots do that, and 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 I play with that a lot, even with the cannon fire in. Uh, in right hand man and Yorktown, there's a lot of fun stutter effects on those on those cannons as well to mimic some of the things that will happen later. So, you know, it's it's a pretty thorough approach to something that seems simple. Raise a glass to freedom. He aims his pistol at the skyway. The other moment that's a real stop time moment, a real time machine moment is uh, is in what we call the helpless, satisfied transition where Eliza sings uh, of meeting Alexander Hamilton for the first time at a party at, a, at the Winter's Ball and uh, having been introduced to him by her older sister, Angelica. And of course, the love story begins. But at the same time, Angelica realizes that she too has fallen for Alexander, but but steps aside for her sister. So what we hear first is helpless, which is Eliza's declaration mm. of, of love. Um, but then we At the wedding, we actually, as Angelica makes a toast to the bride and the groom, we stop time in reverse uh, and do Mm -hmm. what we call the rewind. And then we hear the whole story again, except from Angelica's point of view and the tragedy Mm -hmm. of her having missed out on what we think is the love of their lives. And there's a great moment of choreography and lighting and... And, and just, I think, really uh, something that never fails to stir me, which is this uh, reverse of time that happens on stage choreographically, and the turntable backs up, and, and in the midst of it is Angelica with her glass aloft in the, in the middle of this toast to the bride and the groom, and we play back uh, a reverse version of the score that we've just heard, and overlay The voices, uh, heavily, heavily processed voices of Eliza and Angelica uh, singing some of the phrases that you've just heard in Helpless, but actually foreshadowing some of the things that uh, Angelica is about to sing live on stage. In just a second, and so there's this incredible woven mm-hmm. tapestry of, of a very visceral sense of reversing time and foreshadowing, mm-hmm. and also uh, callbacks from things you've just heard. It's a great. It's. A, I mean, it's. I, I say it's great, and it sounds like I'm. I mean, it's not. I should. It's not that I'm not being humble about it. It's just actually conceptually, it's great. Lynn and Tommy and Andy thought of something really beautiful, and we were able to dig in and really make something cool. Oh. Be satisfied.
0: I remember that night, I just fight. I remember that night, I just fight. I remember that night, I remember that. And are you so? Are you sampling? the vocals on the fly and processing them and feeding them back into the track. Not that one. Uh, that, that moment is
1: actually pre pre-records where we take, we, we bring, mm-hmm. we bring our Eliza's and our Angelica's into the studio and their understudies. And this is kind of a funny story too. And we actually do the processing offline mm-hmm. and we play back in synchrony, the tracks, um, multiple stems, um, in, in synchrony with click track to the orchestra so they can play along and come out of it right on time. The Depending on who's on that night, because obviously on Broadway, it's eight shows a week and anything can happen. We have we have understudies for Angelica's and uh, Eliza's. Okay. And so we often have to substitute those stems depending on who's on. So we, we basically sure. have all those stems on hand and can, can easily make those switches. But that you brought up vocal sampling is interesting because we do that a couple of times in the show. We do live vocal sample uh, for Burr um, mm-hmm. on, on the song, wait for it. Um, and this was, a just, an a, echo. yeah, right? there's an yeah. echo. And we do that a couple of times in that song. And um, that's kind of a, another cool moment that was conceived by uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda, the composer, as an idea that Burr actually is the, one of the characters in the show who has a relationship with time that's different than Alexander. Alexander's always fighting mm-hmm. against time, and Burr's actually always trying to slow time down and hold on to time to to be deliberate to wait. And he sings of this in this big first act song called "Wait for It." And we actually do sample his voice live, uh, and we grab it uh, live with a delay and uh, and feed it and and mix it back into the live event. And we do that throughout the song, and and you can hear that on the uh, on the uh, cast recording. It's it's pretty cool. <laughs>
0: It's one of those things where the audience probably doesn't even realize how complicated that no, is, but it's no actually super difficult,
1: isn't it, it? It's super difficult, and that's a good example to go back to what we talked about very earlier about how how do you get to those things? Like how do you how do you even arrive there, right? And the answer to that is it's something we talked about a year before we got to Broadway, a year and a half. Right. Ago. It was an idea that came up in a conversation, and we had to decide: are we going to try and pre-record that? Is you know, I was asked, can you do it live? And I said, I honestly don't know, but let's try it. Let's make sure Sure. we try it. And we did it in one of the workshops. We actually, we just spent a little time and said, let's give it a shot. And what does that want to sound like? And we do that and there it is, you know, and, and then we, and then we have like, that gets added to the vocabulary of the show as a, as a way to, to, and, 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 as you can see it's not that's not an answer to all of the questions right like this one we do live satisfied rewind we do we do pre-record right there's all there's many yeah. answers to these questions but having having an idea about developing those ideas and what's going to be required of you and what you aspire to as a participant in this story is the fun part, right? I mean, you can hear how excited I'm getting just talking about it because that's actually, that's what gets me, that's what gets me jazzed. That's the fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. that's the fun stuff. You know, how do we, how do we elevate this story and take it beyond the simple communication of words and music? How do we actually participate in the storytelling in a significant way using all of these tools that we have at our disposal and all of the plans we've made? You know How quickly can you pivot and incorporate these ideas? Um, and yeah, that, that stuff gets me really jazzed.
0: Uh, your, uh, your, uh, your person who is actually on the mixing console every night in the theater is, um, they're, they're earning their, their salary, aren't they? They're not just, uh, they're not just putting theaters at zero and letting it ride. No,
1: it's a very active job. I sometimes wish everybody could actually see him, uh, and her. We have, uh, two mixers in New York, Justin Rathbun and Annalie Craig, and they're both fantastic. And I'm, I'm just every time I think of it, I'm just so proud of them and so happy that they're there. And they both do a great job and they're it's like riding a buck in bronco, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. it's Justin Justin described it as, you know, the, the top of the show. There's no overture. It's basically ten notes and you're off and running. It's done. da da da, dun, 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 da 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 and then it's basically two and a half hours of,
0: <laughs> of just a flat out sprint. Um, so it's it's a big job. I wanted actually I wanted to ask you about that. because the first time I, I listened to the cast album, and, and that, that ten note thing just kind of just explodes. I thought it thought I have a feeling there's no orchestra, there's no uh, overture for show. Yeah. So the show. So historically, the overture has served this kind of transitional purpose to get the audience into the into the mood and get them to stop talking and get them to you know hear the show is now about to begin. But you guys just hit them in the face. Yeah. So what how. What happens right before that? Are they milling around and talking or like, how do you, what, what is that first, like 90 seconds of that show? Like it's
1: incredible. Uh, in the theater live, we, we, We bring the house lights to half uh, prior to that, which settles the crowd a little bit, but also it gets them. You know, they're so happy to be there now, having paid their however much they paid for their tickets. (laughs) They 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 get a little excited. We often get a cheer when the house lights go to half, which is kind of incredible. And then you hear a pre-recorded announcement uh, about cell phones. Basically, you know, a very typical uh, thing on Broadway is to just please desperately ask people to turn off their cell phones, which you know only works part of the time um, and it's actually on our show we have a uh, King George doing it he does a cell phone announcement in character which is pretty great and that's pre-recorded um, and then right after that the house we usually get that that usually gets a hand or at least a laugh because it's pretty funny that it's King George and we haven't met him yet and then the lights go down and the spotlight comes up and we hear those notes and uh, Aaron Burr walks into his light to start our story and you know, it's very stirring. I, I have mixed feelings about overtures. I mean, some of the classic overtures. You know, I'm a great lover of musical theater. I, I've, I've always loved it. I grew up with it, and I'm I, I'm I'm one of those people who knows a lot of the original overtures from great yeah. shows like Gypsy and Guys and Dolls and Camelot and all of these things. And. And I, I always, I'm fond of overtures, but, but I think it's also very powerful to start a show without one and to just enter into the world. And, and I think Hamilton asks a lot of people right at the beginning, I think, you know, having heard the album, I think people are ready for it now, but, uh if you're starting in the theater and you don't know much about it and you're walking in, those first 90 seconds actually, uh, and I would say even more, maybe even uh, two or three minutes, it can be a little disconcerting. And I've heard from people who love the show, and I mean love it, unequivocally love it, say that those first couple of minutes are very hard to settle into. Um, that can be true of any Broadway show. I think you know, musicals are just there. Even though we're familiar with them in concept, being in a room with people who are singing is a little weird. You know, when they're trying to tell you a story, and I yeah. think audiences have a little bit of a hard time dialing in at first. Um, but that said, uh, Hamilton in particular, because it's so, it's just an unfamiliar mode to have this uh, rap coming at you, and it, you know you're seeing something historical, but clearly this this language is not is not historical yeah. language. You know, I think there's a little bit of a Shakespearean moment where you're where you just need a minute to get your brain uh uh settled on that on the communication style. And once you're locked yeah. in, I think you I think most people that I you know, certainly I have and and most people around me when I sit and watch the show dive right in. They're they accept it very quickly, but there is a there is a little moment of what is what is going on here? What am I seeing?
0: What am I hearing? Well, you yeah, know, it's and there's a um, you know we see this sometimes in films there's there are certain directors i know that david fincher has, has played with this in the past of like wanting to like not even have distributor logos at the beginning just like you no credit sequence you just start with the mm-hmm. uh, middle of the first scene mm-hmm. and it has this interesting kind of effect and i think you must be seeing this in hamilton a lot, a lot because the language exacerbates it it's sort of like you, you you're thrown into the deep end of the pool yes. and like you just got to start swimming mm-hmm. and the audience will catch up and they will, they will, they will, they will meet you if you provide them with a challenge. And I think that's really what's happening.
1: And I think that's one of the great uh, magic tricks of, of theater in general, and particularly of Hamilton, which is that it, it makes the audience feel smart, right? There is that moment of unsettledness of of discomfort, but ultimately what you're doing is you're saying, I trust you. I, I believe you're going to, you're going to, I trust you enough that I don't have to explain this to you. I'm just going to start doing this thing and eventually you're going to figure it out because you're smart people and and you'll be with me. And yeah. Hamilton really does that. You know, it is a deep end of the pool moment that beginning. Um but but that but it's a, it it is out of I think it is to a certain extent not only out of a respect for your audience saying I believe you will be with me, but it's also a demand. It's saying mm-hmm. it's saying I I, you need to, you need to step up. This is going to be, this is going to be yeah. something special and it's going to be unique and it's oh. going to be a little bit challenging. This and is not going to be just be presented to you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and, and guess what, you know, here we go. And, and I love yeah. that. I love that about it. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of theater that makes people feel smart. And yeah. Hamilton certainly does that. <laughs>
0: so, well, just one more question about Hamilton. Uh, so, you, you guys are obviously, you know, phenomenally successful Broadway run. I'm sure the show is going to play for you know ten years on Broadway. Cross fingers. But you're about to start the process of the the touring productions. Yeah. Um, which means that maybe some of us will finally actually get a chance to see the show <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> live. Yeah. Uh, so, what are the you know? I'm sure we could talk for an hour just about the challenges that you're facing on trying to figure out how to, you know, take this custom built sounds very complicated sound system that you built for the Richard Rogers and figure out how to take that on the road. And not only, you know, you know, build a system that can be torn apart and put together repeatedly. As the show moves around, so can you just talk about that for a moment, and sort of what your what your approach is?
1: Yeah, I mean, right now we're actually uh, in the shop with uh, the Chicago Company. Um, I was just just before you and I went on the air here. uh, I was uh, uh, corresponding with my associate sound designer Jason Crystal about the build in that's happening in New Jersey right now at PRG Audio for the Chicago Company, which is our first company after Broadway. Now. That one's unique because it's actually a replica. It's an install. Um, so it's just, we're not touring that one. Um, we're going into Chicago mm. and fingers crossed it'll run for a good long time. Oh, so, so that's going to be a sit-down project. That's a sit-down, Chicago. yeah. So, so basically we went to Chicago and, and I designed a sound system for that theater that is uh, you know of similar quality and requirements as the New York show but it's actually a much bigger theater it's a 1900 seat theater which is a third again as big as New York um Mm -hmm. so from the what I like to call I I divide these things into front end and back end I don't know if you guys use that term I imagine you don't in film and tv but but basically a front end system is your console and your wireless and all your input side right your your microphone systems your your band input systems your cast input systems and then the back end which is your monitoring systems and your loudspeaker systems for the venue so Hamilton will. stay fairly intact on the front end you know we feel pretty confident about how we dialed in the the, the wireless systems i mean they'll change a little bit because of so everything
0: everything coming into the console
1: yeah that's right the input side basically right. yeah so all of that front end stuff including the console will will remain pretty much intact we've changed a few things because of changing technology and the wireless end uh, with the bandwidth issues that the fcc has gifted us um, but uh, but but primarily, you know, and some refined ideas about ways we could improve it. But we haven't really, you know, that's not a wholesale overhaul of what we did on the front side of the system. It's 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 a basic approaches remain the same. Uh, the back end is completely different. It's a it's a virtually uh, redo from 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 the back end for the loudspeaker system in the house and even the monitoring system. Even though the the locations are pretty much the same, all of that technology is is newer and has changed, and we've upgraded. The touring system is a very good question and that's actually one we've just started talking about because our first tour is going out in March of next year and you know we're just starting to see set drawings for what that that piece of scenery, you know, that scenic design is going to look like, how quickly it has to move, which is actually the big you know, there's the truck space, how many trucks it has to fit in and how fast you have to turn over between cities. Those are the issues that determine what kind of sound system you can troop, essentially. Um, sure. So those decisions are being made now. And those are – you're right. That is a – it's a huge challenge. And it's agonizing because you know you can't get it all right. You know, you can't You can't be right all the time. You can – you're trying to provide your road engineers with the best possible tools to make good decisions on the road. Um, but, But, yeah, you're going to definitely – you know i I always say that doing broadway is the it 's kind of the art of being specific right like mm-hmm. generic is the enemy on broadway in all in all ways, both from the content point of view, just like we were talking about uh gunshots even you know if you 're doing something generic you're not you're not really you haven't really thought it through that's that 's the enemy well on the road unfortunately generic you know is part of the game you have to be a right. little bit generic and that can be very that can be heartbreaking you know because you don't want it to be, but sadly you you don 't really have a choice so
0: Sure. So, um, I you know I I, I was kidding around uh, about it before, but I have to ask just because I'm such a huge fan. What was it like? Uh, what was your experience working with uh, Mike Nichols on Spamalot?
1: Oh, you know Mike, Mike. <laughs> I where I first got to work with Mike on the Seagull, actually in Central Park. That's where I, I and my business oh, partners sure. met him. Yeah, yeah we uh-huh. did. We we had the. Uh, we did the Shakespeare in the park at the Delacorte for many years. And actually Mike was our first client there basically um, when I was with Acme. And, you know, the seagull was a star studded project and we, we went to Mike's house to talk to him about it. And it was just overwhelming because it's Mike Nichols and, and yeah, as smart and, and clever and elevated and kind of wicked as he was, (laughs) he could also be incredibly warm. And, um, I miss him. I miss him. I I you know, one just before uh, and Hamilton uh, and, and working with him on Spamalot was just a joy. I mean, he I he think he made something Spamalot it was a, a hilarious process and a hilarious show, but it wouldn't I don't think it could have been what it was without Mike. I think he he found he found every opportunity for humor and heart in that show that he could have. And I think that's what the audience responded to. Plus there's that cast that he assembled, which, you know, sure. I don't know if you've heard that joke about, I, I, I hope I tell yeah. the story right. That Mike Nichols, the the Mike Nichols story, which is uh, an actor's agent called him and said, Hey, um, Hey, Mike Nichols wants you to be in his in his new play. He called and you got the part, and so that, that's the good news. And the actor said, "What's the bad news?" And the bad news says, "Well, you know, it's only it's only two thousand a week." And the actor said, "Well, I don't know if I can get that much together right now, but I'll try." You know, because <laughs> everybody wants to work for Mike Nichols, sure. you know, and yeah. and the cast he got for that company. I mean, not only getting to be in the room with Mike and to listen to him, work with actors, and to work with the designers and the, and the, and the team, but to hear, to, to, to be in the room with David Hyde Pierce and, uh, and um, I mean that, you know, and Hank Azaria, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it was crazy. It was crazy. These guys that were just so talented and so funny and so generous and Tim Curry and Tim Curry, who, you know, would sing up on stage and we would just, I would just cry because it was, (laughs) I mean, we were, it was Tim Curry. It was the guy, you know, it was Frankenfurter. It was like, it was like nothing you've ever seen and nothing we'll ever see again. And so working with Mike was like that. It was like the opportunity to be with a legend. He actually, I have some great photographs because um, when we were workshopping Hamilton and this was not long before he died, he, uh, he came to see the workshop. Um, mm. Uh, he was invited and he and Tommy spoke for a long time afterwards and I got to see him as well and, and have a quick chat with him. And he was over the moon. He thought that he thought that something, you know, for Mike to say that something groundbreaking and extraordinary had happened, that it was genius was, you know, to hear Mike Nichols say that, yeah, uh, was, was pretty incredible. And it was a great moment. Um, it, it was, I, I was so pleased he got to see it and so pleased to get to see him and, um, it was a great loss. He's a great loss. Um, those are, those were memorable days. And, uh, and I think always will be
0: career highlights too. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to pinch yourself and say, am I really in this room? Is this really happening around? Yeah, I do it a lot.
1: I do it yeah. a lot. I just worked on a great show called bright star, I had a similar experience with uh, sure. Steve Martin and Edie Burkell and, uh, mm-hmm. and the same kind of thing where, you know, you're working alongside and with these, these geniuses and on and these lovely people who are, all out to just make something good. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing where I, I, I count myself very lucky to, to, to be working on shows like that. And, and I've had a, I continue to have a great career of, of working on, on great projects with great people.
0: Yeah. So just shifting gears for a little bit, I'm curious, uh, for you to talk just very briefly about, you know, what, so musicals to one side, when you're doing, um, you know, a straight play like a Bengal tiger at the, at the Baghdad zoo or, uh, you know, because uh, I'll say it again, because I love saying it, motherfucker. What the heck? <laughs> Right. Or Venus and Fur. Yeah. What, what are you, what, what's the role of the sound designer in a show like that? Uh,
1: those tend to be, you know, I, I often describe again, being somewhat reductive. I often describe doing musicals as being a reactive job right where you're 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 trying to kind of do your best at at processing information for an audience and trying to react to the material in a way in a very elevated way and i think that plays uh in this case non-musicals let's call them uh, tend to be a little more proactive because they require a little more attention to content than often than do musicals. Um, so you, your your conversations uh, your conversations in in plays uh, like Terrence McNally's Mother and Sons and Venus and Fur. Those tend to get a little deeper with the director and the playwright about what kind of atmosphere you're trying to create using sound or music, either pre-recorded uh-huh. or original. And you know, and then often there are naturalistic requirements. I mean, the plot just requires sound. You know, door knocks, cell phone rings, things like sure. that. You know, thunderclaps, which like Venus and Fur was a was a was a symphony of thunderclaps and cell phone rings. You know, among uh-huh. other things. But um, so. It's again, but but uh, you know, generic is the enemy. It's the same conversation. You're trying to get to the first. You deal with like what are the essence of the required elements of what you're trying to create, and then what's the best version of the audio landscape of the soundscape for this play? How do you create an environment in which this story can be told in the best possible way, and how can you support the story? I mean, one of my favorite examples of this is um, is actually in Venus and Fur, which you know has a lot of, like I said, it's a symphony of thunderclaps, and each one had to be placed and each one had its own character and how we were going to, you know, how they were going to interact with the lighting and yeah. th- there was all of that. But then, you know, there's a moment in this, in this, it's a rehearsal room uh, for those of you who don't know the play, that it's a director basically running a very odd audition for a woman who's, uh,
0: who's really going to turn on him. <laughs> this is a, yeah, this, this to me is a really interesting example to talk about because this is literally two people talking in a room Yes, for the entirety of the play. Yeah. So, what, what, uh, what was your approach to that? Well, you
1: know, one, you obviously, you know, talking with the playwright and the director about the rhythm of what they're trying to achieve. And again, you know, there's some of these things that, you know, there's a storm and there's going to be thunderclaps that are going to interrupt the action. And then there are cell phone rings because they need to have conversations with each other and with their, with their spouses or their partners. And, um, there's that, but the conversations we even, you know, got to where there's a moment where, uh, Vanda turns out the lights in the, in the, uh, in the rehearsal room that they're in, these overhead fluorescent lights. And she goes to a breaker panel upstage that was installed on the set to do it. And of course, the breakers are dummies, but we auditioned breaker panels to make sure, sure that those sounds that they were making were correct because it wasn't enough that she went and turned the lights off and there was a little click. We wanted there to have some visceral reactions. We actually, we were auditioning circuit breakers at one point. You, making, need, to,
0: you, need, you need to have the right ka
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, yeah. and you, you you know all about this, right? And, and, um, and then my favorite moment which I I can't imagine anyone else actually noticed there was a coffee pot on stage a uh, typical like rehearsal room coffee pot with a clear glass beaker and you know hot plate drip coffee and at one point uh, the the director goes over and pours himself a cup of coffee and puts the coffee pot back on the hot plate and I actually had hidden a speaker in a garbage can right near that coffee pot so that when he set the coffee pot down, it actually spattered. It made a spatter sound, a little sizzle. Mm -hmm, And when mm -hmm. I first played that in rehearsal, the actor jumped, he wasn't expecting (laughs) it, but, but he, he, he ended up loving it. It was like a little touch of reality and to make that room feel that much more real and and that much more alive, right? That you're trying to, you're trying to reinforce the idea. And sometimes you're reinforcing the reality and the naturalism of a moment, and sometimes you're trying to reinforce the supernaturalism of a moment, right? The unreality sure. of a moment. So those thunders would grow and those thunders would be exaggerated. You'd never hear thunder like that. Actually, inside that room, you're in the interior of a building. But that didn't matter. You know, what we were trying to do is achieve an effect and, a, and disturb the audience in a certain way. Um, so those kinds of conversations, that's the approach is what, again, you're always going backwards, I think. You're always trying to find out what are, what's the goal? How are you trying to make – how is the audience supposed to feel, right? right. And then – and then, and only then, are you actually asking, and what are the tools
0: I have to make them feel well, this way, right? I'm I'm kind of curious to see if you have the same, you know, the same sort of phenomenon in the theater. You know, uh, Walter Murch, the the famous you know cinema sound designer and editor, talks about I'm going to butcher this, but he talks about he talks about image as the front door that information comes to the audience yes. and sound is the back door. Mm. And because it's working on a more subliminal level that you're not necessarily consciously thinking of, you have a great dramatic license to be much more abstract with the sound than, than the literal images necessarily would imply that you could. And you could take the audience on a much, you know, you can do a lot to them with the sound that you wouldn't normally think that you could. So I'm, I'm wondering, does that phenomenon exist in the theater as well? Because obviously that, that's the image is much more literal, even and then in, in the cinema because you're in the space with the actors. You're looking right at them, yeah, and you can never escape the fact that you're all in the same space together. Yeah. But are you so with something like Venus and Fur? Do you use ambiences and tones and sound effects in a way to manipulate the emotions of the audience
1: yeah, yeah I mean vinison for as as i said, i mean you can certainly you know even just in where the sound is coming from those ambient sounds and room tones and things like that sure electrical hums things like the coffee, mm-hmm. like very specific spot effects one of the interesting uh uh i mean the 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 and merch is absolutely right i i believe that. Uh, and subscribe to it. The one thing that's tricky about theater, as you say, is that you know you can't escape that moment where the the actors in front of you and the band is there, and so you have kind of both jobs, right? Like the tricky bit is, and I think this is true in film probably too, where you have to continually draw a direct line between what's happening in front of you and the audience, right? You can't, you don't want right. to disturb that. In any way, because that's the that's your bread and butter. But there's this all other thing that happens around them, and and marrying the two can be very tricky. I would yeah. I would say that Bright Star actually is a good example of this. I mean, and it and it might appeal to some of your listeners to know that yeah. uh, Bright Star is a bluegrass. It was a bluegrass musical. Uh, Steve Steve and Edie wrote this beautiful score of bluegrass music, and and the play takes place in uh, some North Carolina towns, um, some of which exist and some of which were fictional. Um, and I actually in preparation for that I I don't I had been to North Carolina a few times but I just didn't know what it sounded like and I knew we had a lot of exterior mm-hmm. exterior moments in the play where we were going to be in environments where I thought wouldn't it be nice if against this very neutral backdrop but we knew we were outside that uh, it was kind of an abstract set uh, that that I could help reinforce the sense of place and again, generic is the enemy. So I actually went to North Carolina for three days and brought my location recorder and, and went out into the woods and out into the swamps. And, and just mm. – even if for my now, – now, some of that material made it into Bright Star. It was in the theater. We heard those recordings. Yeah. But some of it was also just a model for me to know, sure. to know what these places sounded like so that I could develop very sort of abstract or heightened versions of them. And – you know, I'll give you a good example of a, the climactic moment in Bright Star was outside on a front porch in early evening and there were birds, you know, evening birds, North Carolina birds chirping and some insects buzzing and uh, a, a prop, I don't want to ruin the story, but a prop is presented that clearly uh, upsets one of our main characters. And at that moment that the prop arrives on stage, the, the birds stop singing. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is incredibly subtle. I don't think, I mean, I can't imagine it registered consciously for any member of the audience. But right. as a but as a designer, the idea to be able to manipulate sound, I mean, of course, the birds wouldn't stop singing, right? The birds would sing and the insects would keep going. But to remove one element at that moment that I had established early in this very cheerful scene, which suddenly became very solemn, and to be able to basically flip the switch and change the atmosphere for that moment. You know the audience was already experienced. They identified this this object, and they already knew that there was some the 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 drama was contained in the object and the presentation of this object. But to be able to reinforce it, right? And by simply changing the atmosphere in an abstract, completely non realistic way, that's that's I think a little bit about what merch is talking about. It's 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 the side door. It's saying it's right. saying I'm, and it's also saying it's also insisting on trying to participate in the event, right? It's saying, I'm, I'm responsible for part of this and I'm going to try and help. And, you know, sometimes that's successful and sometimes it's not. And often those ideas don't work and they get, you know, that you try them for a couple of previews and the next night they're not in and they go away and you, you know, never to be heard from again, but occasionally you get, you, you, you get one and, (laughs) and, and you sort of delight in it because you've
0: done your part, right? You've done your part. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just have one uh, one last question for you. Uh, I'm curious about what are the changes that you've seen in your work over the over the course of your career, um, and and just one thing specifically, I was thinking about is, um, you know, the 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 issue of miking actors and amplification in the theater. How has that changed over the course of of even the time that you've been doing this in, in the business?
1: I think you know, there's been an interesting through line that that's, I think. I mean, a lot of it hasn't changed that much. I mean, the technology's gotten different uh some of it's gotten better, and of course, now the pressure's on to make it even better because of spectrum issues in terms of miking actors um, The thing that's fascinating me right now is people on Broadway are experimenting, and this is actually interesting because of atmos uh might might tie into this. There's a lot of experimentation going on right now active experimentation and success. Some of it is successful going on with a localization of amplification sources. So mm-hmm. what, what you know, typically on Broadway, you know, once you've kind of delivering a, an actor's amplification path, it doesn't, it stays pretty static. It, and uh, through the years, there've been people moving uh, the delay essentially on that microphone input to match the acoustic. Delay as you as somebody moves upstage and downstage, and sometimes there's some light panning left to right through a sound system. But it's hard because these systems are very complicated, and every seat is getting you know multiple speaker systems. But what's happening now is a kind of devotion to trying to a kind of a renewed effort to actually have the amplified
0: sound follow the actor much more closely. And people- are you talking Are you talking about the experience? I'm just trying to understand. Yep. So you're talking about a, a, an actor walks stage left to stage right or maybe front of stage to the back of stage. You're talking about treating their vocals so that, that they seem to be moving through the space. That's correct. As, as opposed to the amplified voice still coming from the same exact spot. That's right. No matter where the actor is moving exactly. or
1: standing. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so, you know, this it, this isn't a new idea. I mean, this has been around, I think, since the 80s that people have been trying to do this. Um, and there have been many uh, attempts at it. And it's just kind of come back around again. And the technology has gotten very sophisticated by which um, you can do this kind of matrixing. It's a very complicated matrix, obviously. And, the, and uh, there are companies now developing interaction uh, software with um, – RFID tags mm-hmm. and telemetry essentially. So you can actually tag an actor and actually the software will actually track them around your map space and the, ampl- sure. and the amplification
0: will adjust in theory,
1: will adjust accordingly and follow them around. And, you know, there are people doing it to, and to my mind with varying degrees of success. And it's exciting because it's a kind of quest, right? One of the big complaints about seeing a live Broadway show is that I didn't know where, who was talking. Because all I heard was this amplified mm-hmm. voice, and it was hard to identify the source. Now I know all of us, many of us, sound designers work very hard to try and avoid that phenomenon. It's a syndrome, right? And you, you can do a lot of things to try and connect the amplified uh, material to the to the acoustic material in these relatively small rooms. But it's a it's a tricky business, and so these these software and hardware packages that are helping us do it. That map the the map the space and that you can sort of impose on your sound system to allow to give it the 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 software control of some of that is very interesting and there there are a lot of sound designers who are are making good use of it um, mm-hmm. so I think that's one of the big things that's happening like at this very moment uh, that that's really interesting and exciting um, and also not always successful, which is I think is also part of what's interesting and exciting. Like it's I don't think it's particularly interesting when everybody went like it's like, hey, it, it works. Good. On to the next sure. thing. Like that's not that's not necessarily the most interesting part. The most interesting part is struggling with a with a problem and seeing the the solutions that that people come up with. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, interesting Well, um, this has been a great conversation I feel like I've learned a ton So uh, I really, Nevin, I really appreciate you, you taking the time and, and talking with us today about uh, about Hamilton And about sound design for the theater um, This has been another episode of the Conversations with Sound Artists podcast From the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection Nevin Steinberg, thank you again Thanks for having me